You're listening to Intergenerational Politics, hosted by Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi. We have conversations with amazing guests on the issues facing our country today and ask the questions all generations want answered. We hope you enjoy this episode, and once you're finished listening, leave us a rating or a comment to support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl. Um, and I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins. And for our special guest today, I'm wearing a pin because he was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. I'm wearing a pin that someone hand beaded for me of a couple of houses. So this is my contribution to housing and urban development. So welcome. it looks great. Thanks. It's a little small, but it is it's a beautifully made one. Uh, anyway, Republicans around the country are passing bills that will restrict voting rights for most vulnerable populations. Georgia passed voter suppression legislation last month that creates very strict voting ID requirements for absentee voting, limits early voting and outlaws distributing food and water to those waiting in line to cast their ballot, no matter how long it takes. Kansas and Iowa have also passed similar legislation, and more are pending in at least 40 states. Now the Texas Senate, on April 1st, passed legislation to restrict voting access, and it's awaiting House action. Mark Elias was our guest a few weeks ago to describe to explore this concerning trend. Today, we are fortunate enough to continue that very important conversation on voting rights with Julian Castro, someone who understands Texas politics like none other. Uh, Julian was the youngest member of President Obama's cabinet as HUD secretary after serving as mayor of San Antonio, Texas, and subsequently running for president in 2020. Um, We're really looking forward to talking with Secretary Castro about all things voting related in Texas, as well as what the future of the Republican Party looks like in Texas with Governor Abbott, his thoughts on President Biden's housing and immigration policies, and his thoughts on how to engage more young people in politics. So thank you so much for being here, Secretary Castro. We're looking forward to this conversation. Great to be with you all. Thank you for uh, the invitation. Thank you. And we want to start with talking about voter suppression bill in Texas. And um, it's happened, of course, against this backdrop of a court upholding Governor Abbott's decision to limit drop-off locations for mail-in ballots in the last election, the 2020 presidential election, despite COVID requiring more of those to be available. The new bill goes even further. It would eliminate drive-through voting, reduce early voting hours, make it illegal for local election officials to proactively send applications to vote by mail to voters even if they qualify, and it would allow poll watchers to video voters who are being assisted in a way that is reasonably believed would be um, intimidation of those voters who need the assistance because of either language or disability. So can you fill in our listeners about Texas's history with voter suppression? Is what we saw in 2020 uh, and what we're seeing now Is that something new in terms of their attempt to suppress the vote, or has this been around for a long time? Texas has a long and storied history of voter suppression. Uh, I wish I could say different. As a native Texan and somebody who lives here now, very proud in many ways of the state, but for generations, uh, the state leadership 
tried to limit who could vote from zealously using the poll tax to all sorts of gerrymandering to more recently making it difficult for people to register voters to making it a crime, for instance, at one point that if you didn't turn in voter registration forms, that if you registered voters and didn't turn them in within 48 hours, I think that was a criminal offense. Uh, to Tom DeLay's mid-decade uh, redistricting in the 2000s to try and gain a partisan advantage at that time. So uh, SB7 and HB6, which are in the Texas legislature now, are just a continuation of that uh, for all of the reasons that you mentioned. And this is happening against the backdrop of a state that is changing demographically. It hasn't reached the point that Arizona and Georgia reached uh, in 2020, where both of them flipped over and they went blue. But you can clearly see a trend in that direction. Um, uh, Barack Obama in 2012 lost the state by 16 points. Hillary Clinton lost it by nine points. Joe Biden lost it by about five and a half points. In the suburbs of many of the big cities now, they're electing Democrats. And so what you see is you see uh, you know, that, that blue starting to bleed across the Texas map more and more moving outward from the urban center. I think maybe, is there a suggestion there that the extraordinary turnout in the 2020 election is motivating this particular legislation, SB7, uh, because the turnout really made a difference. And uh, as you point out, it's now a five-point difference. Yeah, I think uh, that there are two primary reasons this is happening. Number one, the fear that Republicans have about what's happening in the state, that it's trending Democratic, that the demographics, <clears throat> the long-term demographics of the state don't look good for them. In fact, this year in 2021, demographers estimated that, uh, that Hispanics or Latinos would become the plurality in Texas with something like 42% of the population. But secondly, and I'm not the first to point this out, it's been pointed out that after the 2020 election, the Republican base was very dispirited especially after Georgia, thinking that their vote didn't matter, that something's wrong with the electoral process, that it's all rigged. Now, we know that's not true, but I agree with those who have pointed out that these, these uh, Republican leaders in state after state are doing some of this because they want to buck up their base and give them confidence again that, hey, we fixed this problem. No, you should come and come to the polls. Don't, don't let what happened in Georgia happen in Texas or happen in other places. You can have confidence because we stamped out all of the, all of that uh, voter fraud. It doesn't exist, but they can tell that story to their base. Like we fixed this and regain some of that confidence and regain the, the turnout that was depressed uh, after after Trump's loss and after the losses in Georgia. Interesting. That's a very interesting perspective on it. Um, when we look at the restrictions that are in that bill, it seems like it's going to have a pretty dramatic impact on ordinary voters and minority voters. Uh, do you think that's true, or am I overestimating how much damage it could do? Oh, it absolutely will. And it's going to affect especially voters of color, but really people, whether they're Republican or Democrat, throughout the state. A good example of that is that Harris County, which includes Houston, obviously the biggest county in Texas. 
they allowed for overnight voting right, for shift workers, people that have jobs where they can't conveniently go and vote at two in the afternoon or even at eight o'clock at night. Um, you know, I went and visited during the election just to, to observe. I went and visited uh, one of these early voting locations. I think it must have been about 1230 in the morning. And you know, there weren't a lot of people there, but there were some people yeah. when we were there that went and voted because that's when they could go do it. Now, uh, this, these restrictions say that I think you can only have extended voting hours until 9 p.m. Why shouldn't somebody that's a shift worker, regardless of their of their background or regardless if they're going to go vote Democrat, Republican or independent, why shouldn't they be able to go and vote at three in the morning if that's the most convenient time? You know, and it's not like there were a million of these stations or you're wasting resources. There were two or three of them. So these things are meant to just point shave. It's a point shaving system that they're engaged in. Um, with the idea that they're going to get these Republicans, that they're going to get ahead by doing this. Well, it's interesting. Um, in my county in Illinois, I guess probably throughout Illinois, we have voting on Saturdays and Sundays, which does help to give shift workers. We don't go as late as midnight, but we do go up to 7 uh, p.m. and start at 6 a.m., I think, um, in an attempt to open voting to as many people as we can. Now, as you noted, the Republicans in Texas and, and elsewhere are using the big lie as, you know, they create this thing of there's election fraud so that their followers actually believe there was, despite the evidence that there absolutely was none. And there's no problem with security, no problem with integrity that needs fixing. And I'm just wondering if you think that there is any way that that problem can be solved so that people come to believe the truth, which is there is no uh, election fraud and there's nothing that needs fixing. You know, it, it's difficult because we just had a president that was so invested. He put all of the chips on the table with this big lie when it came to his political future and the future of his movement. And so in the aftermath of that, I think that it's going to take some time. Um, but my advice to Republicans would be, you know, candidly, look, uh, as much as I didn't particularly like this, in some places in Texas, they even made gains in the Hispanic community, right? They had higher numbers. Now that's a trend that I want to reverse, but it's go compete for those votes, Go compete on ideas and organizing and selling, you know, your your worldview to voters out there. It's like they've skipped over that part. Yeah. And instead, they're just trying to control, you know, essentially who gets to vote and who doesn't. Uh, I think that um, there's no easy way out of this in the short term. The best thing to do is to protect access to the ballot and expand the franchise instead of limited. But for Republicans, it's get back into the fight, you know, sell your ideology and your ideas and policy again, um, get beyond Trumpism and, and this idea that you can bully people out of the way and limit people's opportunity. And that's the way to get ahead. So I, I want to just follow up on what you just said, which was that we should also be expanding the right to vote in, in what can we do to not just protect 
and prevent restriction, but what can we do to expand um, and make sure that people have the knowledge they need, but mostly just to have the opportunity and access to the ballot that they need? There's a lot that we can do. Uh, states like uh, Oregon and California have done uh, automatic voter registration. There are a number of states that have done vote by mail. And in those states where they do vote by mail, they see a greater turnout level. Why doesn't every state offer vote by mail? Uh, same thing with what California has done on pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds in high schools. You know, here in Texas, it's either in the education code or the election code. It says that the principals are charged with facilitating uh, the voter registration for students who are going to turn 18. There was an analysis that was done four or five years ago about what percent of those schools were actually taking that seriously. And it was only 20%. Oh. I think only 20% had requested voter registration forms. So all of us, um, I think, whether we're uh, parents who encourage our young people that are going to turn 18, our kids, I say that as a parent with a kid in a few years is going to do this, or policymakers at the school district level, the local level, the state level, obviously in Congress and the federal level, I hope that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passes, we can do our part to help expand the franchise and expand the number of people participating. And, you know, there is a study that shows that if you register early and vote, that it gets to be a habit. And so it increases a lifetime of voting. So that's, that's absolutely. Important. And I know Victor has another study that he wanted to ask you about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first, I mean, that what you're saying about just requiring voter registration in the high school setting or in the classroom setting is so important. I was fortunate enough to have, um, so my senior year government teacher, he made this kind of this life mission of his to promote what he called hashtag civic lifestyle. So basically, registering people to vote, getting people to participate in civics like it's a part of their lifestyle. And I think just getting so many more teachers and social studies teachers or principals to engage in that same effort would go a long way in kind of expanding the opportunity to vote. Um, but like Joel was mentioning, you know, there was a study done by Northern Illinois University that put Texas in um, last place in terms of the ability to vote. And, you know, against this backdrop, you are on MSNBC, I think a couple of weeks ago um, with Beto work on um, Lawrence O'Donnell's show talking about this very issue and making the case for um, corporations to speak out against these voting bills and explaining how that might help. Um, now, the Washington Post uh, has reported that 100 corporate leaders held a call discussing how to push back against these voting laws. So I'm wondering if you can tell our audience a little bit about what power corporations can have in pushing back against voting laws in your state and other states around the country. I was happy to see uh, companies like Delta Airlines come out against the voter suppression law in Georgia. The, the problem there was that they did that after the fact, after the law had already passed and I assume was signed by the governor and so forth. Um, here in Texas, with these two pieces of legislation that would suppress and intimidate the vo voters, companies still have an opportunity to stop this in its tracks. And look, uh, I have criticized uh, big corporations as much as anybody. Uh, I believe they should be taxed higher. I uh, believe that we should get around Citizens United and get rid of dark money. Um, and that corporations generally have too much power in our society. At the same time, 
I also recognize that companies like AT&T and Southwest Airlines and American Airlines and USAA, which are headquartered here in Texas, mm -hmm. they have thousands and thousands of employees, of uh, partners, uh, of customers here in the state that are directly impacted by this type of legislation. And they also have tremendous influence in the Texas legislature. So my hope is that they will use that voice to say, look, this is not about being, if you're, if you're gonna vote Democrat or you're gonna vote Republican or independent, go ahead and do it. But everybody should have uh, a convenient opportunity to go vote. And that's what we're fighting for. It's not about partisanship, it's about participation and exercising the right to vote. Uh, some of them have come out. I've been happy to see American Airlines, Microsoft, Dell, that have a big presence here do that and disappointed in others that haven't yet. You know, there was there was once a time when I think Republicans actually cared about big corporations. But, you know, during this moment when Republicans care, you know, little or I guess more Republicans care little about voting rights and instead care more about deepening divisions and creating these culture wars. Do you think that these corporations speaking out will actually convince Republican elected officials to stop what they're doing in terms of suppressing the vote? I think it can have uh, an influence, uh, maybe on the margins, but I think almost just as importantly, it sends a signal to a lot of people that are apolitical or, or aren't following this all the time. When these companies come out, these companies that they know, uh, and they say, this is wrong, we should not do what you're doing, that cuts through the noise for a lot of people, just everyday people that don't don't even really like politics, don't follow it, but they hear that and they say, oh, well, what are these politicians up to? Or this, you know, this, this is bad. Um, and, and perhaps that sparks an interest, an awareness, and gets, it gets more people um, interested, at least in, in informing themselves and helps grow a coalition of people against these types of measures. I also think and I think Republicans recognize this. That's why McConnell uh, at the national level has basically tried to bully corporations into stopping using their voice. And at the statewide level, Greg Abbott is doing the same. They recognize that this is the kind of thing I think in a state like Texas or Arizona or Georgia that's about to flip, this actually accelerates that because these corporations have sort of been part of the status quo, cozy with Republicans with this establishment for a long time. And so when they flip over, it's a signal, an early signal that things are changing. And that scares these guys. Yeah, I think it's really creating this new kind of norm of, you know, upholding the right to vote. And maybe perhaps beyond voting rights for these big corporations, one of the main arguments that Republicans have been making, I guess, is that, you know, um, you know, why are corporations speaking against voting rights, but not about human rights, you know, abuses in China? And I'm wondering what you think is the proper role for corporations on political issues beyond voting rights. Do you think that there should be more, you know, done by these top leaders to hold things, you know, to hold issues um, like, you know, human rights abuses in China um, to account and kind of going beyond voting rights even? Yeah, I, I don't think that you can separate profit making from values. Uh, and that, especially with Generation Z and with millennials as customers, they're demanding that companies 
align with their values, uh, whether we're talking about at home or abroad. And so I don't completely disagree with the criticism that says to these corporations, hey, well, what about what's happening over here with Uyghurs or any number of other issues? Uh, many of us have always thought that. Um, but I see it also on the part of some of these Republicans as disingenuous because they themselves have, have taken money from these corporations, they've celebrated them, they point to them as the pinnacle, the apex of American capitalism and success and, uh, uh, you know, and often are aligned with them and so forth. And, and so I think there are many of them, not all of them, some people have been consistent. Many of them are just using that as deflection of uh, what this whataboutism. I think that in this 21st century, that whether it's a person or it's a corporation, and I see a distinction between the two, Mitt Romney notwithstanding, and the Supreme Court notwithstanding, um, that both people and corporations need to align with, align their profit-making with their values. It seems to me that's good for profit, um, but it is also sure. true you cannot accept Citizens United and the right it gives you without accepting the responsibility comes with that right. And That's since well the United said you have a, a right to do this and speak out, well, then you have a responsibility to not just use your money, but to use your mouth. Um, but let's, let's shift to something I know you care a great deal about. You uh, released one of the earliest and most comprehensive immigration plans during the 2020 presidential cycle. And right now, uh, on the subject of immigration, President Biden is getting a lot of pushback for the influx of migrants at the southern border. And it's a very complex issue, obviously. The problem starts with the economic and safety issues in the migrants' home countries. Um, and it's obvious that it's inhumane to just ignore the fact that they are there in desperate situations. Um, but at the same time, our country hasn't prepared properly. It isn't equipped to deal with the influx. And then COVID complicates it. So what do you think the Biden administration should be doing on this issue right now? Yeah, well, I give uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris uh, generally high marks for the way they've approached this issue compared to Donald Trump. Uh, admittedly, that was a very low bar that Trump said, because you know he engaged in this cruelty toward kids and their parents. He thought that if in our name as Americans, that he could just separate these kids from their parents and be cruel and make an example of them, that that would deter other families from coming. Well, it didn't work. You know, Not only did they act cruelty, cruelly, but it was a failure. And so I agree with the approach of common sense and of compassion that the Biden administration has taken. Uh, yeah, they have operationalized that by doing things like uh, trying to make sure the unaccompanied minors that are in federal government custody uh, are not crammed into these facilities that look like cages on the border and instead get them into better accommodations and ultimately more quickly get them into the the loving homes of host families, usually relatives that already live in the United States while their asylum claim is adjudicated. Um, on top of that, they're doing probably the smartest thing that you can do. And another thing that Trump failed at, which is 
you need to get to the root causes of this. You need to make sure that somebody living in Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala can find safety, opportunity, and security at home so they don't feel compelled to take that very dangerous journey with their child to the United States border. If we can get that done, and that's not a one-month proposition, it's not a one-year proposition, this is years, but if we can get that done, then we're going to stop seeing this cyclical um, migration flow that we've seen from Central America. We saw it under Obama. We saw it under Trump. Uh, we are seeing it under Biden. We even saw it in the 1980s, you know, for different reasons, but under Reagan. I'm glad that Biden is getting at the root causes. I, you know, I, I'm not without my critiques of their approach. Uh, I think that they should lift things like Title 42, which basically was the law that Trump used uh, to, to summarily keep people out from being able to claim asylum. They're allowing children, unaccompanied minors to claim asylum, but not the family member that might be right there with them. I think we should go, I don't think that we should use Trump's standard as the default. You know, we need to go back to what we were doing before and just be smarter about it. Um, and then today, Biden announced that uh, even though he had pledged to lift the refugee cap, the number of refugees that we would take in uh, from about 15,000 that Trump set it to, to I think 62,500, that they're actually going to keep it after all at 15,000. I think that's a mistake. Uh, I understand some of the reasons that the administration has given of why they might do that, but I disagree with it. So I generally give them good marks, but hey, you know, I, I also need to point out where I think we need to continue to improve. So he is facing another problem, which is the political environment at home, which is despite um, the reason that I thought he would be such a good president was because of his reputation for working in a bipartisan way, there seems to be no chance of bipartisanship influencing any legislation. Um, what can be done in this political environment? Well, and you know, Jill, that's one of the most disappointing things. I think for even for somebody that's super conservative or super liberal, uh, so much of the country's progress over the years was was built on people of different parties being able to carve out that space where they could come together and make some incremental progress on things, whether it was civil rights or economic investments and so forth. That's not happening. Uh, and it's especially not happening with MAGA Republicans, you know, this Trump-dominated Republican Party. What can we do about that? Well, I think that, that Biden is continuing to try and reach his hand out. And, you know, to the other side, he spent 36 years in the Senate. If there's anybody since LBJ that could actually get something like that done, get bipartisan support, he can. Um, so I have confidence, every confidence that he's trying, and he knows how. Uh, but as they say, it takes two to tango. And right now, these Republicans don't want to dance. Given that, I think that we need to maximize the, these two years that we have. Democrats have the Senate and the House um, with, of course, the vice president to tie break. He needs to be bold. 
Uh, and he needs to do a very good job of explaining to the American people why he's moving forward and still not getting Republican votes. So they can't, you know, they try and say, oh, well, you're not trying. He needs to show how he's trying. Then finally, I actually believe that we should uh, jump over the filibuster, that it's standing in the way of things like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and any number of other uh, changes that we need to make. Uh, gun safety legislation being another compelling example of that. Uh, these changes we need to make to improve our country. Yeah, I, Victor and I are now both convinced that the filibuster is a historic remnant that does not serve any modern purpose and stands in the way of what our country was founded on, which is majority rule. Right now, the minority uh, is ruling. And that's not how it was intended. Okay, so I, I want to shift to something where you have enormous expertise, which is housing policy. And, you know, like so many issues during COVID-19, um, it's really brought to the forefront the issue of secure and affordable housing. So I'm wondering what you think is the right way forward to address this issue and what you think the Biden administration should be doing when it comes to housing policy, especially with COVID right now. I believe that in this country, we should be aiming for a nation where everybody can live with dignity. And when it comes to policy, we need to sketch out what that looks like. Bernie did a great job of saying um, healthcare ought to be a human right. And then we need to work to make that so. Same thing with housing. Right now, we have millions of Americans who are on the brink of eviction. After this pandemic, they're worried about when these eviction moratoria are lifted. Uh, that they may be out on the streets. We see the cost of housing spiking again tremendously in market after market in this country. Uh, we have seen a growth in homelessness. It's not just in the downtown area anymore of cities. It's also, you know, along different corridors of cities. You can see this and even in suburbs. The infrastructure plan that the Biden administration put forward includes $213 billion proposed for affordable housing creation and to address homelessness. This would be a huge step forward compared to the investments that we've made over the last few decades. Um, it would represent about a third of what he proposed during the campaign, uh, which was a $640 billion plan for affordable housing over 10 years. So this would be a good down payment on that. And that should take all different types of forms, low-income housing tax credits, uh, using some of the uh, mainline programs like the HOME program and CDBG, uh, homelessness grants, uh, direct investment into communities to create more housing that's affordable, and something that he's very smart about, incentivizing local communities to change their zoning and planning codes which are often fraught with nimbyism and this vestige of keeping people out of certain neighborhoods through different zoning restrictions, give local communities the chance and the resources to change those codes so that affordable housing in more places becomes possible. Definitely. That, that's so important. And do you have any, um, do you have any thoughts on Biden's um, current uh, housing and urban development um, secretary? I know she, Jill sent me an email last night saying that she knew the first um, African-American female to, to hold that position, but now Marsha Fudge is the second one. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about her in that position. 
Yes, yes. Uh, I had an opportunity when I was housing secretary to work with rep then representative mm -hmm. uh, Fudge, and uh, she's very impressive and knowledgeable on these issues. She has a passion for them. And so I'm confident that that she's going to do a fantastic job. I'm very encouraged. Just a couple of days ago, uh, she called for reinstating a rule called affirmatively furthering fair housing, which was a groundbreaking work we did in the Obama administration that, that picks up on unfinished business of the 1968 Fair Housing Act. And then also uh, she called for a return of the disparate impact rule, which would help to address uh, policies and practices out there that have uh, a disparate impact on especially communities of color and other protected groups. Awesome. Well, you know, to close off this, um, th this podcast, I know that you have a really active or politically active family, you know, your brother is in Congress, and um, you, you had a, you have a long history in politics. And I'm wondering for, I guess, first, how did your interest in politics start? And then second, um, what would you say to young people who are interested in politics and, you know, about the importance of, you know, this life of public service and that runs deep in your family? Well, my interest in politics actually started because of my mom. My mother was a hellraiser when she was young. She was uh, part of the Young Democrats and then part of the uh, Chicano movement. She ran for city council in San Antonio when she was 23. I didn't win at the time. That was 1971. Very hard for women, very hard for people of color to win. But she, started, she stayed very active. And uh, my brother and I grew up being dragged to rallies and speeches and marches and handing out leaflets on election day. And um, little by little, I developed an interest uh, in trying to come back after law school and be involved in public service to, to make sure that more people here in my hometown could have the same kind of opportunity that I had to be able to get a good education and then go off to college, go to law school, you know, reach my own dreams. I wanted to make sure that they could reach theirs. For young people, um, I would say, number one, always believe in yourself. There's nobody else that is quite like you. And you always have something to add to the conversation uh, because um, you're unique and you bring your own perspective. Surround yourself with people who believe in you, who love you. And I hope that more of our young people think about going into politics because we need their energy, their idealism, uh, their creativity to solve problems. Uh, and it's even though a lot of people will say, um, you know, politics isn't for me because it's too nasty um, or like I don't have enough experience, I would just say uh, that you do have to have a thick skin, but it's not as bad as people sometimes make it out to be. And the vast majority of people in politics really are trying to make a positive difference. Uh, and then finally, um, there's never gonna be a perfect time if you've thought about running for office. There's never gonna be a perfect time in your life. So be realistic about your time commitments, but if you have a passion for it and for, for serving your community, go for it. So one, one last question. What mm -hmm. are your future plans? You know, uh, this is the first time in a while that I don't have an office that I'm aiming for. Um, I'm very unlikely to run in, the, in 2022. 
uh, for anything, and, and then I'll figure out things beyond then. But in the meantime, I'm going to use my voice and the platform that I do have mm -hmm. uh, to try and help bring about that vision that we laid out in the campaign mm -hmm. of a nation where everyone counts. And I have my issues that I'm particularly passionate about, whether it's uh, housing or um, police reform or immigration. And I've been supporting candidates that are running up and down the ballot at the local level, the state level, the federal level through People First Future that also believe in that vision. And I'll keep doing it. Yeah. Well, you have a very powerful voice and platform, and that is a very good use of your time right now. Um, I also, Victor mentioned um, the first African-American secretary of HUD, and that was um, Patricia Harris, who was yes. a partner at my law firm right after Watergate. I went to a private firm, and she was one of the most elegant and inspirational uh, people I've ever met. She was a real mentor and inspiration to me. So it's very much an honor to talk to uh, you as her successor. So yeah. thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, uh, Jill and Victor. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Intergenerational Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. We always love reading through your comments and your reviews, so let us know your thoughts about this episode of Intergenerational Politics on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. You can also feel free to share our podcast with a family member or a friend to make sure that everyone is a part of intergenerational dialogues. Thank you so much again. See you next time.